Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading this week's Sermon and Prayers of Intercession from the English Reformed Church Amsterdam. We hope you will enjoy what you are about to hear and that you will be blessed. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word before us. We give you thanks for the privilege of fellowship together in Jesus Christ. We pray your blessing on all that we will continue to do, to say, and to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. In our first reading this morning, because we have been following over these last number of weeks in the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the theme of the resurrection, in our reading this morning, it seems to me that St. Paul's tone in this passage seems somewhat impatient, even slightly rude, when in verse 36 he says, Fool, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. I'm told by some of the learned commentators who know better than me about such things that he's not really being rude. Apparently, Paul's using a common form of argument to make the point and develop the point that he wants to make. But still, it seems to me that it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And not at all a foolish question. I suspect it's a question that many of us have. Yes, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but how resurrection actually works and how it will work for us is still a bit of a mystery. Although I have to confess in the community in which I grew up, there was a lot of certainty about what happens when we die, but it did begin to seem to me at one point that we were certain about things that didn't quite match up. I wasn't quite sure how the resurrection of the body fitted in with the commonly held idea of being wandering spirits in a celestial heaven walking the streets of gold and playing harps. And I resolved all those questions. I resolved them by resolving not to bother trying to resolve them. There will be a resurrection. There will be a new form of existence. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm happy to leave it at that and wait for the surprise. So when I read Paul saying, fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, I want to say, hold on a minute, my friend. You may have it all sorted out and be clear in your mind, but be patient with those of us who don't. And I'd want at the outset of this sermon to say that if you're a fellow struggler, someone committed to following Jesus, someone who believes in death, his death and resurrection, someone who with a full heart can give thanks to God for his grace and mercy to us in Christ, but who struggles with what the Bible says about life after death, don't think you're alone. You're not. And don't panic. And don't give up. Last Sunday, Pastor Lance gave us a, a sermon on the resurrection and used this wonderful illustration in his children's talk, which all of us adults benefited from greatly. If you weren't here last week and want to hear a good sermon on the resurrection, listen to the podcast or download his text. It's there on the website. Because this morning, I want to do something slightly different. I want to take time to reflect on two things that arise from this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's teaching on the resurrection. I want to think about how we see this recurring pattern of death giving birth to new life in the New Testament. 
And I want to think about what it means to bear the image of Jesus. Two things that Paul says in this passage. First of all, death giving birth to new life. Our text tells us what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. And this pattern of death giving birth to new life is not just about physical death, but it's something that's actually central to the Christian faith. Because throughout the New Testament, we're told that Jesus' death was purposeful and necessary to give birth to a new kind of life in His resurrection. It appeared to the disciples that His death was a disaster. We hear two of them on the road to Emmaus lament what might have been. Oh, we had hoped that He would be the one to redeem Israel. The other disciples are locked in an upper room in Jerusalem, worried that the authorities will come for them next. The situation seems to be hopeless. But that apparent hopelessness that the disciples felt is transformed into an incredible boldness and confidence as they discover that the death of Jesus gives way to resurrection and a whole new form of life. The disciples' experience marks the beginning of understanding this pattern of death giving birth to new life, which can be traced in different ways throughout the New Testament. It seems to me to be a major feature of our reading today. There's continuity, but difference. There's the death of the seed, which is no more but arising from that is the fruit that was always contained within it. And writing to the church in Rome, Paul speaks about how that pattern of death giving birth to life is demonstrated in baptism. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we've been buried with Him, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. And that's part and parcel of what we're saying in baptism. We're united with Jesus in His death, and that identification gives birth to a new form of life. And Paul explains what this new life is. It's one that now lives for God. He says when Christ died, He died for sin once for all, but now that He's alive, He lives only for God. In the same way, You must think of yourselves as dead to the power of sin, but Christ has given life to you, and you live for God. In practical terms, that means us not allowing our bodies to be used for wickedness, but consciously using our bodies, our gifts, and our abilities for righteous purposes. It means a new focus in life. It means living the values of the kingdom of God that Jesus taught us and lived out in His own life. Because believing in Jesus and His death and resurrection is an invitation to come and die with Him and rise to live with this new kind of life that He lived for us, to die to selfishness, to die to self-centeredness, to die to wickedness and sin and die probably every day to these things. But it's also an invitation to come and live, live as witnesses of the kingdom of God, to live a life by the values of that kingdom taught and demonstrated by Jesus. Give yourselves to God, Paul says, as people who have been raised from death to life. Make every part of your body 
a slave that pleases God. And this pattern of death giving birth to new life is not restricted to an understanding of what happens just on our physical death. It's central to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. Maybe, perhaps, Paul's apparent impatience in verse 34 is not just a rhetorical device, as some suggest. Perhaps Paul is genuinely frustrated that after all this teaching that he has given the churches about dying with Christ and rising to new life with Him, people still haven't grasped that when you're dealing with God, this pattern of death giving birth to new life holds good for this life, not just the next. There is, however, one particular theme that Paul highlights in connection with this pattern of death giving birth to new life, and it's the theme of reconciliation. When he writes in a similar kind of way to the Christians in Rome, he takes time to explain a connection between Jesus' death and the birth of a new life in which we are, he says, reconciled to God. And when he picks up the theme again, when he writes a second letter to the church in Corinth, he develops this theme of reconciliation again. Now, you sense when you read the second letter that he's very conscious of his own mortality. He's much more reflective on death than in his first letter in 1 Corinthians, which is pretty dogmatic on the issue. And he talks about his physical body being like a tent, an obvious metaphor coming from someone who by profession was a tent maker. And he says, for in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And in the same section of this second letter to the Corinthians, he makes this connection between the mortal being swallowed up by life and reconciliation. Knowing this, knowing that death gives birth to new life, knowing that that is not just about the future but about the present, he says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human or earthly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, entrusting the message of reconciliation to us in our new life. So this changes both how we choose to live our own lives and how we live with others. This reality of death giving birth to new life means that we can't relate to the people around us from a merely human or earthly point of view. So we cannot separate out the blessing of resurrection hope from our calling to be agents of reconciliation here and now. Because together, all of us are bound into this ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about. It comes to us as part of the new life that is given birth through Jesus' death. It's not just about the church as a denominational structure setting up a a ministry of reconciliation. It's about us who enjoy this new life in Christ, recognizing that that is our calling and our ministry. Some years ago, I had the privilege of visiting Uganda and staying up in the northwest region, the district of Arua, and hearing of the 
historical tensions as well as the current violence that was there at that time being visited on many people. And I discovered in um, a news service, the Anglican news service, that last week just in Uganda there was an exercise of reconciliation that took place. The news, uh, the newspaper describes it as, as follows. It says that in February 1977, the archbishop of that region was arrested on the instructions of Idi Amin. The archbishop was a leading voice in the criticism of Amin's administration and his uh, detention of people and their disappearance. He delivered a note of protest to the dictator regarding unexplained disappearances and murders. And the archbishop, along with two others, was arrested, and the three were put on display at a big rally that Amin had in Kampala. The following day, the authorities announced that he had died in a car crash. But when his body was handed to his relatives, it was found that he'd been shot at least four times through the mouth and chest. Now, after his death in 1977, he was declared a martyr by the Church of England. And in 2016, President Museveni declared February the 16th a public holiday in the Archbishop's memory. Last week, during that holiday, Canon Stephen Galenga, from the same tribe as Idi Amin, delivered an emotional apology to the Archbishop's family and people of his tribe. And he said, What happened during the reign of Idi Amin, who is my kinsman, we still feel the pain after 40 years. As the new generation, we need to put to end all the bad past, and we move forward as reconciled Ugandans. Ugandans cannot heal this country if we do not pay if we pay evil for evil. So Christians from Idi Amin's tribe, led by this uh, canon, this bishop, met with the archbishop's widow in their family home, and they prayed together. He said, Mama Luem, forgive us. We slept at their home. We asked for forgiveness on behalf of all the people who had sinned. We also want to forgive those who wronged us during the time. And a retired local bishop said that after 40 years, the people asked for forgiveness for the killing of the archbishop. The people of Arua and Kokobo and the people of Uganda are witnessing this great miracle happening. You see, this deliberate act of reconciliation is an example of the new life given birth through the death of Christ and our identification with him. The ministry of reconciliation calls us to die to old enmities and the prejudices we inherit from within our community, to no longer regard others, whoever they are, from a merely earthly point of view, but to see them in the light of the new life given birth through Jesus' death. As we see from the example in Uganda, exercising the ministry of reconciliation is not time-bound. There's no statute of limitations when it comes to addressing the wrongs of the past, which we continue to harbor and inhabit, whether that's within our family, our church, our community, or between the nations. So if we truly believe that Christ's death gives birth to new life, if we hold that hope for ourselves and others in the context of our physical death, 
then let us strive for consistency in our belief and be consciously, deliberately agents of reconciliation. But the second thing, briefly, I want to refer to is this interesting phrase that Paul has about bearing the image of Jesus. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. And it echoes something that John says in one of his letters. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Both John and Paul are reflecting the theme that death will give birth to a new life, and both are saying that you and I will bear the image of the risen Christ. Indeed, John says not just that we will see him, but that we will be like him. I don't know about you, but I find that very disturbing. I can relate to worshiping Jesus. I can relate to obeying him. That's fine. That seems appropriate for me to do. I'm not claiming I do either of those things well. But the idea of being like him, of bearing his image perfectly, that I find overwhelming. I almost don't want to believe it. It feels like too much to handle. It feels like too much grace. I feel I'll spoil something of the glory, the beauty, if I'm allowed to be that close to Jesus. And I've got to wrestle with the implications of that. But here's the thing. When a person signs up to a particular role in life, we expect them to assume and demonstrate the values of that role. We expect them to live up to that office. We expect doctors to keep the promise to heal rather than harm. We expect police to maintain the law and live by the law. We expect clergy to live a life consistent with their vocation. We expect engineers to know the limits of their construction abilities. It might be a police recruit's first day, or a junior doctor's first ward round, or a minister's first charge, but we expect them to live up to their vocation, however new to the job or however inexperienced they may be. And it strikes me that however disturbed I may be about the idea of being like Jesus, however much that might unnerve me, it's part of the deal. That's the implication of dying with Christ in baptism and rising to walk in a new life. And what I need to do is get over my insecurities and uncertainties and start living up to my future, to my vocation, to start thinking about what it means to bear the image of the man from heaven, what it means to be like him. There's a whole world of books and websites on visualization. The idea that as you imagine something in your mind, you can make it happen. It ranges from snake oil sales, the extreme of offering techniques that will enable you to become a billionaire by activating the law of attraction. Whatever you need will just come to you if you think and visualize enough. To techniques that are deliberately used by elite athletes under the direction of sports psychologists, in which athletes rehearse their skills and visualize the outcome in their minds just as much in, as doing the physical exercises. And I came across this uh, Dr. Cumming from the University of Birmingham, 
who teaches people how to do this and helps elite athletes achieve their best by visualizing uh, what it is they're hoping to achieve by rehearsing in their minds and seeing the outcomes of their training and their goal and what it is they're after. And she talks about it helps you get the most out of your training. It helps you compete more effectively. It helps you stay motivated along the way. Now, I don't want to become a religious psychological snake oil salesman, but if one day we will be like Jesus and bear his image perfectly, it strikes me we should be visualizing what that might look like in order to live faithfully and successfully now. In order to live more effectively as Christians and stay motivated in running the race, some visualization might be helpful. And when we consider ourselves worthless, and if we're tempted to feel that our lives are pointless, we need to remember that one day we will bear the image of the man from heaven and be encouraged. And when we are caught in deep despair, then we need to remember that when we see him, we will be like him and be assured that we are deeply loved. I don't know whether you've ever read one of the many books exploring the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There's lots of them. They record and they compare gospel events and they address what appear as anomalies in the text and they compare evidence against contemporary historical records. They can be really interesting and enlightening and challenging. But the real evidence for the resurrection is not found in such books. It's to be found in the lives of the people who claim to have died with Christ and been given birth to a new life in him, striving to work out what that looks like for his glory. Indeed, it's fascinating to note what, that ha- what happens immediately in the end of 1 Corinthians 15. There's this great doxology, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? The, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful doxology. And what follows it is fascinating because Paul didn't know about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He just wrote the letter. We put the 15 and the verses and 16 and all into it. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Everything about what he says about this new life is grounded. And this great doxology about the victory over death and the removal of the sting of death is followed by now about the collection for the Lord's people. For fellow fellow Christians in Jerusalem were struggling, times were hard, and they needed support. And remembering them and giving for the poor is part and parcel of the practical outworking of what it means to believe that death gives birth to new life. Brothers and sisters, may the resurrection of Jesus be for you comfort in life's trials and bereavements, encouragement to be God's agents of reconciliation, and encouragement to visualize and live out your future when one day you will be like him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, 
We come before you today to bring our prayers and petitions for our world. Lord, you know we live in a world that is often broken and where every day many people suffer tragedy and loss. We think this morning of Dhaka in Bangladesh, where more than 80 people living above a chemical store have died in this dreadful fire. God of all comfort, draw near to those who have lost family members in this tragedy. Give boldness and courage, we pray, to those who work to improve living conditions and safety regulations in Bangladesh. And give wisdom to Christians who help their neighbours in practical ways in this terrible situation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We think today of Scotland, where this week a 16-year-old boy was convicted of the horrific rape and murder of a six-year-old girl on the peaceful island of Butte. Lord, we feel lost for words in the face of such evil and depravity. Loving God, may your presence be real in that small community as they support each other through the pain and loss of such a terrible event. Bless your children there as they weep with those who weep. May the family of that little girl, in your mercy, somehow come to know your everlasting arms underneath and around them. Lord, in your mercy. We pray today for countries where political unrest and instability cause suffering and fear and poverty. We pray especially for the people of Venezuela, of Nigeria, of South Sudan. Bring peace, integrity and reconciliation, we pray. And give to those who bear your image in those countries wisdom, grace and love. Lord, in your mercy. We pray this morning for ourselves here in Amsterdam. We give you thanks for this church, for a gathering of those who come to worship you and have fellowship with each other in Christ. In silent prayer now, we bring before you those known to us who are unwell today. Those who used to join with us, but because of failing health, are no longer able to make the journey to the Bechainhof. Those who are here, but who feel isolated and lonely, even in a crowded room. and any of us today who especially need your touch. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for our pastor, Lance, as he preaches your word in this place each week. We pray for the consistory as they provide leadership. We pray for Richard as he directs music that prompts us to worship you. We pray for the World Day of Prayer on Friday. We pray for the Further in the Faith course that we'll be beginning. And through all that takes place here, may we learn to better bear the image of Christ in all our lives. We bring these prayers to you 
the God of resurrection, the God of hope, and the God who hears his children when they call. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.